just putting their perspective in a box that I can just, you know, set over here on a shelf, set it aside, and like, that's their opinion. They're going to have it. I'm going to keep doing me. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Kate Woolen. Dr. Woolen has over 20 years of healthcare experience as a scientist, founder, and executive leader in entrepreneurial growth and Fortune 10 organizations. As a behavioral epidemiologist, she was an internationally known leader in population health and is a fellow in both the Society of Behavioral Medicine and the American College of Sports Medicine. Kate was the founder and CEO of Scale Down, a digital health company that was acquired by Anthem. She has been named as a Forbes healthcare innovator that you should know. Dr. Wallen is an advisor to digital health companies, a partner at Pace Healthcare Capital, and a professor of entrepreneurship at Kellogg School of Management. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. So, Kate, I'm uh, very excited about the discussion today because uh, behavioral science is something that uh, everyone is talking about, but uh, almost nobody is doing a lot about it. So, and that's one reason why we decided to add you to our scientific advisory board. But before that, I would like to uh, let our uh, audience uh, know a bit more about yourself, about your uh, background and uh, also to explain to us why have you decided to become a, a, a scientist? Oh, well, I'm just nerdy. So becoming a scientist <laughs> sort of an easy proposition for me. Okay. I, you know, it's, I, 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 one of the, my favorite things to do is to talk to high school students about sort of resiliency and, and those soft skills. And they're always shocked that I didn't know what I wanted to be at 18. And I like to remind them that I'm much older than that now. And I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But I was really fortunate when I got to college at Tufts University to be assigned an anthropology professor. And I had no idea what anthropology was. And he started talking about his research and how different communities and cultures think about what it means to be healthy. And I just thought that was such a fascinating idea. And, and pursued that theme in different ways and shape in the eating disorder space, in sort of cultural competency, you know, as an undergraduate. But that just idea that we have the ability to take action in our health and make choices, but there are all of these influences on those choices, right? Both our, our context and the opportunities, but also the social and cultural norms that we exist in. You know, I went to college in the era when fat was bad um, and snack wells were the jam and so gross, so gross, right? But it, it's sort of funny to think even within sort of American culture, how what people define as healthy has changed. And I just think that's such like, there are just so many interesting questions to ask. I could nerd out over them like all day long. 
Well, good. That's our hope of what you'll do on the podcast too. <laughs> so I would like to know how you define behavioral epidemiology, epidemiology and what other scientific disciplines are really intertwined with behavioral epidemiology. Yeah, it's a good question because I'm pretty sure I invented the term several years ago. You know, when I applied to grad school in public health, I actually had one of the universities I applied to read my essay and call me to ask if I had applied to the right department because uh, I was really interested in the quantitative methods that went along with epidemiology and most epidemiologists end up with a minor in biostats because biostats is a big part of epidemiology. But I was really interested in that quantitative approach to human behavior. And so, you know, the, it sort of was this question multiple times of like, I think you might be applying to the wrong department. And I was fortunate to have a grad school advisor who really embraced sort of community-based research and understanding context and quantitative methods in that. And so I majored in epidemiology with minors in biostats and health behavior in grad school. And then I, I sort of leaned into that. So while a lot of my epidemiology colleagues are looking at genetic mutations and, and sort of biomarkers and, and like things I like to describe as being smaller than a pinhead, you know, my interest was really in using those same analytic techniques, but in the context of what influences human behavior. So instead of looking at sort of what genetic mutation influences your risk of colon cancer, one of my dissertation papers was answering the question I used to get all the time, which is how little activity can I do and lower my colon cancer risk? Because lots of people don't actually enjoy physical activity that we engage with in community-based and workplace settings, right? Their goal is to do as little as possible. That was where I spent a lot of my career. And so I thought it was a really interesting question of, of, of answering things like that. And so like that to me is sort of what behavioral epidemiology was, is the merging of that health psychology and population analytics. So that's a good uh, introduction to my question is, and the question is, uh, as I said before, we are talking a lot about behavioral science, but uh, there is not a lot of uh, integration into a product in healthcare and in wellness. So can you discuss it a bit and explain to our audience why uh, it's so hard to integrate behavioral uh, changes or behavioral science into a digital health product? Yeah, I mean... I think, you know, the most basic level, what I say to people all the time is like, it turns out humans aren't mice, right? So, you know, if we can, if we could put everybody in a little maze and, and tightly control the environment that, that, that object of, of, you know, change is focused on, it would be a lot simpler, but we're not. And so it makes it really interesting. And I think that complexity is what fascinates behavioral scientists. And has, you know, led to all of that. But what I'd like to remind folks is, you know, I'm part of the Society of Behavioral Medicine, which is an organization that's been around for decades, right? Like this science of studying health behavior change is not new. It just didn't, it wasn't something that unfortunately got out of academia very, very early on. And so I, I think it's great that people are paying attention to it now. So, you know, thanks to the behavioral economists for sort of being better at marketing, perhaps, than our psychology colleagues have been. But I think the flip side of that is that there's been a focus on a small number of the behavior change techniques 
and not really embracing the full breadth of them. So, you know, there's there's close to 100 different behavior change techniques that have been identified, but very few of them have been deployed into sort of real world interventions and and programs. So there's still a lot of opportunity to do that. I think the other thing that an integral part of uh, behavioral science as it relates to health behaviors in particular is are two things that sort of make it unique and challenging. One is the incredible importance of context and the context that our behaviors have. So asking me to do something at home versus work is different. Asking me to do it, you know, around the holidays, right? Like sort of doing something the week of Thanksgiving and doing something the second week of January might be really different. My favorite thing is to pay attention, right? Everybody who loves to exercise, like complains about everyone showing up at the gym in January. And like, I can't get on a treadmill because all these people who don't exercise are here. And then, you know, I live in Chicago. So this, this January is not representative, but typically you get like some giant storm and all of those people who had those New Year's Eve resolutions, they're not there that morning that the snowstorm hits, but the regulars are all on their treadmill, right? And it's a great reminder that context matters, right? Like the weather is a key indicator for a lot of people in what they're going to do in, in certain health behaviors or behaviors in general, right? Like my my commitment to the environment and taking the bus every day to work also fades when that first giant snowstorm hits. So, you know, it's not just health behaviors that that, that matters for, you know, and so I think the other part of that, right, is, is context is not Right. So, you know, you someone in your family gets you have a work situation that changes your financial situation. And all of a sudden, you know, the context that you're making these behavioral decisions in changes and it habits get disrupted as a result. And things move from being sort of automatic and using those processing mechanisms to requiring a purpose and a plan or a different plan than the one that had been working for you. So I think that part of health behavior change is, is just super, super interesting and really makes it a fun and unique challenge of how, how to do that. But, you know, we do have a lot of interventions that have done that well be- long before digital was around, right? We, we used to show up and teach people time management and teach people navigating setbacks and teach people how to plan for your environment or plan for the holidays in a different context. You know, we just when I started in the field, we did that in a in a in a fancy binder with some really cool clip art graphics, but it worked. So, you know, now one of the amazing things that we get to do in behavioral science is adapt in real time to those context changes and those behavior changes in a way that we couldn't when I started in the field because we didn't have real time information. And I guess with that, have your priorities shifted? What your goals for your career with your public health background, what you can do with behavioral epidemiology? Like, what are your priorities or things that you'd love to achieve with that? I think like sort of impact has always been a key motivator for me in those changes. It's why I left academia. So I I still like am clearly very nerdy and love the science, you know, but in academia, right, often you're running a clinical trial, so only half the people get your intervention. And, you know, sometimes like people do really lovely things, right, where they offer the control group the intervention later on a delayed basis, which is a wonderful you know, 
thing to do from an impact and and standpoint. But you know, when I, I left academia to launch scale down, we had a, our key partners sort of say, we think we're going to send you 10,000 patients in the first year. And I had this moment of thinking like, wow, if I had stayed in academia, I would have been lucky to deliver an intervention to 10,000 patients in my entire career. And this company is going to offer me the opportunity to do that in a year. Now, it turned out they, I got 10,000 patients in the first three months. So I was drinking from a fire hose. But you know, that that opportunity to have impact is something that really matters a lot to me. It's what motivated me to go into public health in the first place. And it's still what drives a lot of my choices and motivation to do things today. You know, it's why I've actually gone back to teaching and teaching at a business school is the ability to sort of amplify what I've learned and share it with the next wave of entrepreneurs who want to come in and make a difference in healthcare. And if I can save them making, you know, even one of the many mistakes I made in my path, like that's great because it means more, you know, effective and impactful programs and interventions get out into the world. So, Kate, speaking about motivation, we know that there are a few different kinds of motivation, intrinsic versus extrinsic. Uh, and uh, the question is, which of them uh, uh, can uh, yield a better result for uh, the end user? And uh, how can an end user that uh, listens to us today find the best motivation for him or her uh, to reach their goal? Oh, I mean, I think if you're, it's really hard to rely only on extrinsic motivation when it comes to the the kinds of behaviors that I get excited about. So, you know, there are things that that that, that can work perfectly well for. Those tend to be behaviors that someone only has to do one time, right? So, you know, the bank can offer me a toaster to switch. Do you remember that? Like when I was a kid, like, I'm to the dad, if you switch to that bank, we could get a free toaster. And my dad would be like, we have a toaster, right? And I'm like, but we should get another one, right? Like, you know, th- those programs work work well for those sort of one-time behaviors. You know, like, I only need so many toasters. So you can't toaster my way to, you know, you know, training for a marathon, reducing my colon cancer risk through physical activity. And like, you can continue to stack them, but but it it just becomes a really challenging thing to do from a, a scalability, sustainability, viability perspective of a program. And so I think, you know, when you think about chronic behaviors related to chronic disease risk and, and, you know, those sorts of things, intrinsic motivation has to be a part of the equation. And I think the the interesting question is, is how do we leverage the intrinsic motivation that people have? And how do we recognize that that is not a static thing and so, you know, we kind of have to scaffold around it with other things, right? So we have to have routines, we have to have reminders, we have to have extrinsic motivators that, that scaffold around that, that internal and intrinsic motivation that people have for it to work. So the way I tried to explain it to people is sort of motivation is kind of like a, a fire, and if I go to build a fire and I just take that newspaper and I light it, right, it burns super hot and fast and then it's gone, right? And if I, my husband is an expert 
house or campfire builder. Like, do you want some more? He's your guy, right? And so there's like all of these little twigs and he, he checks each of the sides and he puts those around the newspaper. And then there's the bigger ones. And then like ultimately like the logs come and there's a whole strategy that he has to building this campfire. And I complain about it all the time. Like I, I give him a hard time, right? And then I sit there. Right. And so when I think about sort of doing behavior change, to me, it's like, that. what is that? Like, what are the little twigs? What are the bigger pieces of kindling? And what are the logs that we're trying to scaffold around that newspaper? That's a great analogy. So for these um, intrinsically, intrinsic motivators, I'll say, are there some tactics that make health behaviors a little bit more intrinsic versus just these extrinsic, so outside motivators? Are there some ways that we can really put those little twigs in there, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about health behaviors is a lot of times we talk about them in, in the context of the health outcome. And a lot of those health outcomes are really far removed, right, from a time frame standpoint, but also sort of like is what I'm doing working, right? And one of the the key things I love in self-determination theory of motivation, right? But there's plenty of them, but take that one, right? Is this sense of competence is a really important part of motivation. And so when you're talking about a, a, a cancer risk, a heart disease risk, like risk of death, right? Whatever that might be, like it's so far out that it's really hard to know if what you're doing is working and you're on the right path. And so I think the intrinsic motivators become really interesting and important there of, right, like, yes, being physically active might lower my risk of of having a heart attack someday. And that's fantastic. But if that's all I'm anchored on, like, it's really hard to stay motivated, right? But if I can instead anchor on the fact that I am a much nicer person to be around and my husband likes me a whole lot more when I've been physically active that morning at him, right? Like that's a much better motivator. And, and I, I can see the benefit of it in a much shorter cycle. And so it becomes reinforcing, which is another really important part of behavior change and motivation is that that, that self-reinforcing loop happens in a time frame that I can notice and measure and acknowledge and talk about. So, okay, that's great. But can you give our audience a few advice or tricks how can they influence their motivation uh, for uh, something that is a far-fetched, like my LDL is high. Okay, so what? I, I might die from a, a heart disease in yeah. 30 years. That, as you said, it's hard. But how can they uh, continue to be motivated from today until the 30 years? So hopefully it will be never yeah. that uh, the heart uh, disease will come. Yeah, I, I think those are finding those things that are measurable in a shorter time frame. So you know, if that is, you know, setting a goal and, you know, giving yourself milestones, right? Like if to lower, you know, to change my LDL, I need to eat, you know, five servings of vegetables every day. And that's my goal, right? And if I do that for three weeks straight, I'm going to have a reward, right? A reward is one technique for reinforcing that. But the other is sort of thinking about, other ways of giving yourself feedback, right? So I happen to be quite a big fan of ice cream, but I I don't always feel great after I eat a lot of it, right? So 
it's, you know, having a mechanism to remind myself that when I choose something different, I actually feel great and, and actually paying attention to that, acknowledging it and recording it, right? One of the things that we, we sort of find in health communication is um, people tend to respond better to a, an additive versus a subtractive message framing, right? So instead of telling me to never drink, I'm not a sweet drink person, but like, you know, Kate, you, you got to stop drinking soda altogether, right? We frame it as choosing beverages that are like choose water, right? And so you kind of see that. And what happens today is that people will have, they'll track how much water they drink. And if you're drinking that much water, you're probably not drinking as much soda or frappuccinos or whatever other thing it might be. And so it's a much more positive thing to anchor on doing more. It can be really hard to anchor on like taking away because that doesn't feel as positive to people. And so tending to look for those opportunities to frame what you're doing along that like that long journey to lower, you know, to changing your cholesterol as being something around those shorter feedback loops and anchoring on like what does feel different in the short term. And what about community? What role does our community, the people that we surround ourselves with, play in motivation and behavior change? Community can be good or bad, right? I mean, I think that that's the, you know, I, I, and at this point in my career, we were working on a, an intervention for women who had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And they were working, we were working on diet activity, weight management related behavior as part of the program. And, you know, one of the women said, like, I'm working really, really hard to make these changes, but my husband keeps buying ice cream and sticking it in the freezer, right? So um, right. When you talk about like the context, right? Like it's, it's much harder to avoid ice cream when it's sitting in your freezer all the time. And when your community and your support is actually working against you, it makes it that much harder to change your behavior. And, and we know that in prevention behaviors, we know that in addiction behaviors, that that becomes really important. So I think that's one part of it, right? The community can can be a contributor to a lot of negative emotions, like so guilt and shame come into that. So we talk about it a lot around holidays, right? Because people will be like, oh, like, you know, I'm trying to do all the right thing, but it's Thanksgiving and I really enjoy mashed potatoes and I don't eat them that often. But like, I know when I put mashed potatoes on my plate, you know, Aunt Betty is going to look at me and go, you're diabetic. You shouldn't be eating those, right? And it's, you know, it's like I've done all of these other things to put myself in a position to have one spoonful of mashed potatoes on Thanksgiving, right? Like those things are really, really hard for people. And so I think there's that side of it. And then there's the flip side of all of these communities that provide support. And, you know, for folks who love to be physically active and they, you know, you love to go cycling and you hear people who are on Strava talk about Strava right? Like it's like, it's the greatest thing that's ever been invented that like these people come and they show me these new bike routes and I moved to a new city and Strava was like how I made new friends because I found all these other people who like to ride these trails, right? Like it can be this amazing tool for helping support people's behaviors and choices. And so, you know, I think it's to me, the devil is in the details on, on those sorts of communities. And I think one of the things we seen 
as we've started to really study them more systematically is that those communities and that connection being genuine matters a lot. So um, I have a, a colleague, Sherpagato, who has studied sort of online communities and and what they've found is that you know, moderators putting content into a community does not have the same effect on the community engagement and the community behaviors as the organic content coming from a community. And so I think, you know, those learnings around what it takes to have successful community is really interesting. The other science in the space I find fascinating is from a uh, colleague of mine who's at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, Wendy DeMarc Wanafried, who studies dyadic interventions. So having a partner as part of a program. And, and Wendy did this awesome intervention with cancer, women who had had a cancer diagnosis and having them bring their daughter in as a partner in the intervention, knowing that there's often like a hormonal or genetic component, you know, to cancer. So obviously lots of behavioral elements of it as well, but that that would be a, a prevention intervention for the daughter and a survivorship intervention for the mom. And I, I'll never forget sort of Wendy describing like the moms loved it thought it was like the best thing ever to be doing this program with the daughters and the daughter. Right. It was like, it's like one more thing for my mom to nag me about. I think it was like one of the, the quotes from a participant. And, and obviously like that may not be true for every mother daughter dyad, but I, I think to me, it's like, you know, these learnings that we're getting around sort of what types of relationships of social support and community really matter, like in terms of sort of, it's not just all community is good or all partner, you know, relation, you know, partner dynamics are, are good. You know, there are, there are certain components of them that make them more or less effective. So Kate, you, you provide earlier a very good example or a, a story about uh, uh, the people that went to the gym in uh, Chicago in early January and uh, uh, let's say the 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 gym rats stay in the in the gym even during the snowstorm, but the newbies decided really? not to go. And I assume that the gym rats had a, a habit, and the new guys haven't had a habit yet. So, can you describe what is an habit? How you uh, adopt it, and uh, uh, how can uh, we help uh, 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 people that want to adopt a new habit to adopt it in a good way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's important to remember that like those 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 gym rats, right? Like they, they just don't magically appear at the gym in the morning. You know, I have a, a, a dear colleague who's a behavioral scientist who says like, you know, the salad doesn't just appear on my desk every day at lunchtime, which is really different, right? Than sort of how many of us get into a car and, and I can be like halfway to campus before I like I'm really conscious of like what route I'm to like oh like right like I get in my seatbelt buckled my mind can be in 17 other places and I'm halfway to the office and I'm like oh like right right like here, here I am right I'm sort of like you know it just you do it every day and it and it is a very different thing like that does not happen for some of these other behaviors right and so the it is sort of creating that repetition and that structure around it that gets you to that place. So for those gym rats, right, like they're getting up 
every morning. And they're, you know, like uh, one of the things that we try to teach people when they're trying to build those habits is, you know, packing your gym bag the day before, you know, you put your sneakers like there. So, you know, when you get out of bed, like you trip over them. Now that wouldn't fly in my house because we are in no shoes past the front door place. But, you know, you, you kind of, what are the things that you're going to do? Um, you know, so that when the alarm goes off and you haven't slept well and you're like, I would just like to hit snooze and go back to sleep, right? You're not going to do it. You're going to get up and go. And so it, it's that kind of scaffolding again of, of, you know, putting the things in place that are reinforcing, that are reminders, right? You're aligning it to a structure that already exists so that over time, it can become a habit, but it takes time for that to happen, right? Like it's it's not like I set a New Year's resolution and like I go three times and oh now I'm a gym person, you know. And I think it's also the part of it is the behavior change techniques and the one that I think is most relevant here is sort of we teach people when we do behavior change interventions about navigating a step, right? Because the reality is. There will be a day where like you have a cold or, you know, like your kid was up half the night that, you know, something happened and like you're exhausted or you have an early meeting. And so what happens when something disrupts that architecture that you have put around it? And what we want to make sure happens is like, okay, that happened, you know, Tuesday morning, didn't get to the gym what happens on Wednesday, right? Are you now like, is the dialogue, I guess I'm not a gym person or is the dialogue, I didn't get to the gym today, like tomorrow's a new day. Um, And and I think that kind of comes into the, some of these things around competence, right? Like, do I, like, what is the narrative that I'm telling myself? What are my intrinsic motivators? And I think what we sometimes see is that when the motivation is extrinsic, it's much harder for people to navigate that back than when they have aligned those things around the intrinsic motivation. Like, oh, I noticed that when I do go to the gym regularly, I actually sleep better. Like, oh, I noticed that like I'm in a better mood at 3 p.m. when I go to the gym in the morning, right? Like, what are those things that indicate to you that you're on a path and allows people to sort of change that internal monologue? Yeah, I see it also as a priority because uh, you can wake up on a Tuesday morning and see that you have a meeting and you don't have time to go to the gym. You can always go in the afternoon or in the evening and is watching TV is more important than going to the gym. So you always can, uh, you have a building block of the day of 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Let's assume that you work eight hours. You still have a lot of time to to play around and it's all a matter of... priority. If your priority is to watch TV and another episode on Netflix, so most likely you won't, you won't be in the gym. I mean, I think it is priorities, but it's also, it's another great comment of one of the other things we teach people is time management skills, right? So, you know, like, you know, for me, I have a, I have a teenage athlete who has practices in the evening. And so, you know, it's sort of like, okay, if I don't work out in the morning, like, I'm driving to practice, like, what's my, like, what does that mean? Like, there just isn't time. And so I've got to do it in the morning or like, do I have a backup plan? Right. And is my backup plan? Like, I'm not the average American. So like caveat that, but like, 
I'm the person who is 15 degrees out and I'm doing laps around the ice hockey rink, right? Because I just need to get some activity in. And like, is it the same thing I would have done at the gym? No, but like, I like literally, I am a nicer person when I am active. And so it's better for everyone if I go like, you know, do 20 minutes of laps around the building, like while they're doing warm ups, and then I go in and watch the game. And like, everyone else sits in the rink and has a, you know, has a chat, and I'm my little thing, right? Like, that's a thing I learned in like my very first job in public health. It was like a suggestion that one of our exercise physiologists gave to, like one of the groups was like, they were like, I don't have time. Like I have to take my kid to soccer. And they were like, well, walk around the soccer field. And I was like, oh, that's great. Yeah, I can do that. Right. And so it is, it's the the time management. And, and of course, like one of the things we hear all the time is, right, we now know that these, these are not isolated behaviors, right? Like, so I want you to exercise. I want you to get eight hours of sleep. I want you to eat, you know, 15 servings of vegetables a day and whole grains. And that means cooking. And all of those things take time. And so time management actually becomes one of the most important pieces of that scaffolding around behavior because it, it's much harder. My grandmother was a home economics teacher. So I think I just grew up in like a very different environment than most people. She planned the meal for the whole week, right? And that meant like when she came home after a long day on Tuesday and she was exhausted, it wasn't like, I mean, one we couldn't have afforded it, but like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm tired today. Like I'll just, you know, order pizza. Like the meal was planned out. The ingredients were in the fridge. And it was again, like one of those things where like, I don't have to think I'm just executing the plan that's there. And I found that that is far, like that is absolutely the case for me. Like if I don't have that plan, if the ingredients aren't in the fridge, I'm not going to stop on the way home at the grocery store and like try and come up with a plan. I'm going to be like, oh, we'll just order takeout, right? Which is far less healthy. And and like, it's great that that I have that option. A lot of families sort of economically don't, but um, it, it does mean like when I plan and I manage my time differently, I make much healthier. And that kind of leads to my next question of if there are some factors that can predict if someone will be able to stick with the habit. It kind of seems like inception a little bit, figuring out, you know, we want them to do this. Now, what can we also do to make sure that they do this so that, you know, down the line something happens? Yeah, I mean, I think we we really do consistently see that resources make a difference, right? So um, people who are working multiple jobs, right? Like so there's just more challenges in that time. You know, people who live in environments that are food desert, right? They just have to do more work to get access to to fruits and vegetables and, and healthy food choices to have safe places to be physically active. So at a real base level, like resources matter. You know, when we talk about folks who sort of have a sufficient level of resources, I think that is where we kind of get into some of these behavioral skills around having an action plan, managing time, um, you know, sort of what is the narrative that you use to speak to yourself, right? So that's something that comes up a lot in cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Which is sort of what is the sort of like, what do you say to yourself when you have a setback? And so I think, you know, those kinds of things tend to come up a lot 
in behavior change interventions, right? Whether we're talking to you about diet or activity or something else, you know, and then I think the sort of delta in all of that or or sort of the recognition that our environment has a big influence. So I started my career in public health working in smoking cessation, right? And we were using all of these techniques and strategies to try and get people to quit smoking. And fortunate, unfortunate, I happened to be working in the space when two really big sort of macro things happened. One was an appetite for raising tobacco taxes, like happened, right? And as the tax rate went up, the cost of those things became prohibitive for a lot of people or just like it changed the trade-off for them. And that happened. The other was that we changed literally the physical environment because we made smoking in workplaces, restaurants, and bars was banned in certain communities. And like there was this fear that it was going to destroy these businesses because people weren't going to come to the restaurant if they couldn't smoke. And it turned out like there was a whole world of people who were like, oh, that place, right? Like I can go and I don't feel awful afterwards, right? Like the days when I got to stop like hanging my coat over the radiator from getting out because I, I was trying to like air out the smell, right? Like that was a really interesting time and it had a far greater impact on our smoking rates than any of our individual behavior change interventions, like all due respect to my colleagues that I trained with, had had. You know, you sort of think about the environments that we live in, work in, like they are far more obesogenic today than they were when I was growing up, right? Like the idea that you would stop on the way home from practice to get something to eat. Like my mother was like, no, there's food at home, right? Like it wasn't the cultural norm. There weren't that many places to stop, right? And and now it's sort of like every time we leave a game or a practice, there's a an abundance of fast food, right? Or convenient, you know, food available. It's very normative, right? To stop it at Dunkin' or Starbucks or one of these places for something. And like, that is part of our social norm. It's part of the environment that most people live and work in. And it just means like all of this food is fast, available, inexpensive, right? Our policy choices change the the price of a lot of that stuff relative to fresh fruits and vegetables, right? So those things matter a lot for health behavior. So so it sounds like uh, from what I'm hearing from you, one is a macro uh, effect is the environment, the government that can do a lot. And I know that in Europe, the example that you gave about the tax for cigarettes, they have also some tax about uh, uh, beverages that have high calories. And uh, suddenly you can see that... Uh, the, the amount of uh, cardiovascular disease or obesity is uh, going down. Uh, another one is the location that you live. So it's, uh, it's a lot about uh, just move, <laughs> move to a new neighborhood that it's a bit nicer, less uh, desert, and uh, uh, maybe the population is uh, a, a bit uh, higher uh, socioeconomics. And you can, uh, uh, if I'm looking from our side about longevity, maybe you can uh, live a bit uh, better longer, which is uh, amazing how the your environment is influenced so much. But what fascinating, right? Because it also you think about the environments that tend to be supportive of physical activity, right? They have sidewalks and they're walkable. Those tend to be environments where you are more likely to engage with your neighbors, right? And you sort of think about all of the research around, you know, the longevity in these communities in Japan and Greece, right? There's a lot of social connection 
that those communities have as well. And so, you know, it's not just that I can go out my front door and go for a walk. When I go for a walk, I'm likely to run into other people in my community and engage with them. And and I think like sort of how we parse out which of those pieces of it is, is really sort of the active ingredient or, you know, this portion of it versus the other, like we don't yet know. Right. But but I do I do really think that the science we have available suggests that there is something different about being in a walkable neighborhood versus being someone who lives in an unwalkable neighborhood and might get in the car, drive to a park right? Like park the car and walk around the park, right? We both might get or drive to a gym, get on a treadmill with my headphones on, right? We both might get 30 minutes of of walking and the same number of steps, but the context that it's happening in may actually have a different effect on our health. And I think we're just starting to kind of parse those out and understand how they play in. Um, But I think it's really interesting. And uh, uh, talking about uh, Chicago, I read an article a few years ago about a comparison of a population in uh, downtown Chicago, where there are the food desert suburbs of Chicago. And they they showed that the, the lifespan difference was almost a decade. So basically, you live in the right neighborhood, you live 10 years longer than someone that live in a, a, in a poor neighborhood, which is crazy. It's crazy to, to understand how the environment... Uh, uh, influence your life by one decade. It's it's unbelievable. Right, right. And and those are, you know, that is like, right, where we talk about social determinants of health or political determinants of health, right? Those things are a reflection of, of the healthcare resources available in those communities, the preventive resources in those communities. And I think it's, it's really interesting that we're starting to see the healthcare system pay attention to that and and try to do interesting things, you know, around food as medicine and sort of having Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania is always sort of at the forefront of these things. And, you know, they had a program called a food pharmacy, right? So the same way that someone can come in and get diabetes medication, you know, they can come in and get food as medicine for, you know, the management of their chronic disease. And, And I think that that's a it's a really interesting thing to sort of contemplate, right? Like we, we, I've, you know, seen some studies where people do qualitative research in communities of folks who have chronic conditions and they talk about like, you know, I don't have a working stove, right? Cause like they, they sort of have a slumlord landlord. And, you know, so it's like, you can tell me all, you know, till you're blue in the face about the value of like, you know, cooking rice and beans as a high fiber, low cost food, but like, and literally don't have a working stove. Like yeah. that, you know, under, you know, kind of those things just the right, like we were talking about before, like real base level for a huge section of, of society is very different than the fortunate uh, position that a lot of uh, other of us sit in. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, going back to the discussion about the habits that uh, we started a few minutes ago, and unfortunately I drifted, so sorry about that, um, is about, we, we discuss about habits and how you form and all of that, but uh, if I'm uh, uh, going back to the uh, newbie that going to the gym in January 1st in Chicago, how long it will take me to form the habit that when the next uh, snowstorm will come, I'll wake up in the morning and uh, drive to the gym? What is the, what is the rule of thumb of uh, that? Not, 
Everybody loves that rule of thumb. I love that that rule of thumb has not really been borne out by a lot of the data. I think, you know, my co-founder, Gary Bennett, loves to tell, like, talk about when, you know, he was longtime obesity researcher and he's like, never fail. You get on a plane and someone's like, what do you do? And you're like, oh, I'm an obesity researcher. And they're like, great. Right? Like there's a secret we're all keeping from everyone that's going to make it easy. And like, it, it, there's not like this moment where like, oh, I've gone to the gym 15 days. Now it's the right? Like yesterday it wasn't, today it is. Like, it, you know, like that would be nice, right? If it was a certain number of hours or a certain number of days. And, you know, we're all different, right? Like we're all magical unicorns and we're all a little different. And and I think, you know, what we, I think it's, those are nice rules of thumb, but I think we do people a disservice by sort of suggesting that like there's an inflection point and it's the same for every person and every behavior, right? Because some behaviors are sort of more complicated. They involve more steps. They have a different set of barriers to navigate. And so I, I tend to avoid them because I think what, what I fear is that when someone sort of hits that rule of thumb threshold, and it's not a habit, they, the narrative is like, oh, I'm not one of those people, right? Like, I'm not a gym person. I'm not an active person, right? And like, you, you, we're all active people, right? Some of us just, you know, don't like to run marathons, which is a-okay. I have a question about use, and we'll get to this a little bit more, but using technology to really get to those intrinsic motivators and you know your work i'm sure essential on a lot of those themes of you really getting to the the core of the things that will make people stick with these habits when they are a bit more difficult and do you see like work towards actually digging helping people dig through all of the stuff to find those motivators that they can stick to long term is that something that you're seeing a lot more yeah. You know, with behavioral health and tech in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think, right, it started with, right, we've known that self-monitoring is a cornerstone of behavior change for a long time. And, you know, when I started in the field, right, diet monitoring was, here's a notepad and a calorie king book, and you're going to go write everything down, right? And then you're going to do the multi-step math to calculate the calories. And like, it's time consuming and it's burdensome. So, when technology put that right in a Palm Pilot or ultimately like in an app, right? Like it made it easier and it took some of the friction out of it. And that's great, right? Because we are trying to take friction out of things for people. And so we did see some slight improvements. It wasn't just about the technology of the self-monitoring, right? Part of the self-monitoring is the awareness that comes with it. So, you know, one of the questions is like when you take the tracking, the manual tracking out of something like activity monitoring, do you actually do people a disservice because they're not as aware of it over the course of the day and and therefore they're not actively inter sort of intervening on themselves? It's an interesting question. I don't think we have an answer on it yet. You know, at the end of the day, that self-monitoring was part of a larger system of creating self-regulatory feedback loops. And I think we do a disservice when we think that technology is the end of the solution in those things, right? In you know, 
25 years ago, right, we, we thought like, oh, if we come into every workplace and we do a blood pressure screening and people know their numbers, right, and they know they're hypertensive, they're going to automatically change all of their behavior and our risk of people having heart attack and stroke is going to just go away, right? And know your numbers wasn't sufficient then and it's not sufficient now just because we've made those numbers easier to access in the palm of your hand and like height and more precise, right? We still have to do the behavior change. We still have to teach those behavior change skills. We still have to put those techniques in place that allow people to do that. And so I think, you know, technology has an important role in that, right? Like you as my health coach can see my numbers in real time and you can provide feedback in a short, right? We can tighten that feedback loop. So that's awesome, right? Like you can actually see my data today instead of waiting a week until we have our coaching session, right? Like we can, I can monitor myself over the course of a day, right? So I can actually see at noon that I'm unlikely to hit my activity goal for the day if I continue on this trajectory. So, you know, I better go walk around the ice rink at 5 p.m. because otherwise I'm not going to hit my goal for the day, right? Like that is an interesting opportunity to intervene. And I think we also, you know, we also sort of have this tension between population health, right? Like what is true for the population as a whole and as public health person, love that. But also we're all different, right? And so you and I can have the exact same exercise plan and eat the exact same thing. And we're not going to have the exact same results because we're different people. And so technology's ability to help us get more personal with that, I think is really compelling. I think that we just had to kind of cut through some of the noise that just sort of like having my data is going to, you know, automatically help me figure out what's different about me than you, right? We, we have to still sort of do the work of, of doing the, that testing and learning and sort of it's sort of interesting. I guess like the example I love from it is like if you have a Nest thermostat, right? Like that control system engineering, like the Nest is learning your family's habits and and adjusting the thermostat to sort of create um, an energy saving environment for you. So how do you use that technology and the other behavioral information to kind of create your own individual ecosystem, right? So like that, that to me is the interesting place of where technology has a role to play. But like, I still have to say like, no, don't make the thermostat 85 degrees. Mm -hmm. It's funny to see that technology on so many things. How your baby sleeps when you get in the car. It's crazy to see that everywhere. Yeah. So, uh, Kate, it it is a fascinating discussion. And we actually prepared a, a... A lot more questions that we would like to ask, but we are uh, uh, unfortunately running out of time. So we'd love to host you again, and we will try to set up uh, the time uh, in the future. But uh, uh, I think that it's, it's, it was uh, a great discussion. I think that there is a lot of uh, material for our audience to learn and to understand that behavioral science, in my opinion, and I'm not behavioral scientist, I, I think that it's the most important science because at the end of the day, if you know everything and you're not implementing it, what is the value of knowing it? So uh, definitely we would like to dedicate another episode for that. And uh, I will let uh, Ashley continue with uh, uh, the summary question and uh, we'll take it from there. Yeah, so we always wrap up by asking our guests if there is a top tip that they have 
or maybe a handful of tips for improving health span that you yourself implement every day? Oh, well, I, had, I tell you the one I'm working on, which is my sleep. And so I, I like as we, you know, your sleep sort of changes as you age. And so I feel like it's one of those things where I, I keep having to learn new techniques to sort mm-hmm. of navigate, navigate that. So I'm currently working on getting my temperature right for sleeping. And so I would like it to be freezing cold and that is not going over well in my household, but I'm working on it, getting it. So if someone just recommended, I haven't tried it yet. So this is not a recommendation, is a blanket that helps pull the heat off of you so that you're not so hot at night. So that's that that just came and I'm going to try that and see if then I can live in a household of people who want it warmer than me. I I I uh, done this uh, uh, balancing my temperature, the room temperature for the sleep, and I found that for me it's sixty seven degrees. I'm not saying that it's for everyone, but for me it's sixty seven. So, yeah, well, I uh, I would love I would I would like it to be like sixty two. The other challenge is I live in an apartment building, and so the ability to actually control your apartment's temperature oh, is yeah, it's not easy. Uh, as we we said before. Uh, uh, Setting yourself for success and uh, setting uh, all the behavior and all, it's uh, pretty tough. But uh, the good news that we hope to have uh, you again, Kate, with us uh, soon. Um, So I would like to summarize by saying again, thank you so much for uh, the wealth of information. And uh, I'm sure that uh, our audience will will love it. And uh, we look forward to exploring uh, the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the leading scientists. For more information, please go to www.insertracker.com slash podcast. Again, thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome back to Longevity by Design. Uh, we really enjoyed our uh, initial conversation with Dr. Wallin uh, that we wanted to continue that conversation on the science of uh, behavioral change. We'll jump back into our discussion on technology and behavioral change and then we'll dive into topics including diet improvement and specific behavioral change tactics. Welcome back, Kate. Thank you so much for having me back. Okay, so in our first uh, conversation, Kate, we briefly discussed some pros and cons related to technology and behavioral changes. Um, so would you like to give us a refresher about that? Well, I mean, I think... You know, as uh, you and I have discussed this before, there's been a lot of changes in technology and the quality of that technology and a pretty rapid acceleration in the last few years, which is really exciting. But I I always like to sort of go back to the good old days of, you know, when I started in this field and we would give people, oh, I used to have one in my office, um, the old spring-mounted pedometers, like the original ones. Right. And, and we would give those to people in like a notepad and they would record, you know, they had to like look at the thing at the end of every day and write it in the notepad. And, you know, I think we got really excited when a little bit more technology came in to step counting devices that we were going to see better outcomes as a function of a better sort of knowledge of numbers that came with that. And we did see some slight improvements, but One of the things that really did not change with the addition of that technology and its continuous improvement was the adherence 
to the self-monitoring, right? And really what we're trying to get at there is, is self-monitoring is the thing that we're excited about because it creates these regulatory feedback loops that are really important, right? So I see that when I, you know, when I take the, I walk to the bus, I take the bus, I walk to the office, right? I get a lot more physical activity than when I drive, right? Which is kind of a, a duh moment, but like, when you see that and you build that feedback loop and you're thinking about how can I be more physically active, right? We want that feedback loop to happen. But if, you know, if people stop getting insights and they stop sort of having that feedback loop because I'm not learning anything new, then adherence to the devices tends to decrease with time. And that was true for the original sort of pedometers. And it's been true for most of the, the new generation pedometers. And I think what's really exciting about where we are with technology now is the just-in-time nature of the technology combined with the advances in the analysis and tying that to the types of input and insights that can come from coaching and, you know, ideally as AI continues to grow, right, we can actually continue to give people insights. And so it's not enough to know your numbers through the technology. It's really around the insights and the other behavior change techniques that can be married to the data from that technology that allows us to drive the behavior change that we need to see consistently over time to really change chronic disease outcomes. And so I think we're really at the precipice of an opportunity for those things to come together. But, you know, like a lot of things, we also have lived through enough hype cycles that we know the devil is in the details and, and lots of people have made those claims in the past and we really haven't seen them come through. But, but I, I am optimistic that we are really at this point with what we can do with that technology to really deliver value to people in part because of how we can marry it to, um, the coaching that, that people provide, right? And so if you've ever worked with an amazing dietitian, you know that, you know, them getting that real time data allows you to have a really different conversation. Yeah. And, uh, uh, piggyback on that, a lot of fitness tracker or wearable have a different form of a health score. So you have the recovery score from whoop and activating uh, on the Apple Watch and the uh, a sleep scoring with Zora, just to name a few. InstaTracker also has uh, something called InnerEdge 2.0. Basically, we are scoring uh, your blood biomarker and giving you one number that's showing how old you are. Uh, what do you think about those metrics and the effective of those metrics to promote a positive behavior? I mean, I think it's, they, to me, it's a great example of sort of when you are user centric, what happens? Because what, you know, what we used to see was people were doing things in silos, right? So I was tracking my fitness here. I was maybe, you know, you know, in the early days of pedometers, right? Like Fitbit Gen 1, right? Like we didn't have sleep trackers, right? So people, if people were monitoring their sleep and like, let's be clear, Fitbits came out in the era where we glorified not sleeping and we were all like hustle culture. So, you know, a lot of people weren't tracking their sleep, right? But, but these things were happening in silos. You were using like three or four different modalities. And what we would hear all the time in coaching conversations was that people were like, they were competing, right? There was this sense that my sleep and my physical activity are competing with each other. And I think We've all had our days like that. I happen to have one this morning where I've had a lot of 
late nights and early mornings. And, you know, it was this tension of like, am I, am I getting up at X time to do the big workout or am I, you know, sleeping in because I'm really, really like sleep deprived right now. And so, you know, people make those trade-offs all the time. And when like the early days of technology and tracking, that wasn't integrated. And so I think what's really, and it was a frustration and a friction point for users. And so what I really love about these scores is they are an effort to consolidate and bring data together to help people make those choices, right? Because we are going to make trade-off choices of like, I have time to cook. I don't have time. Like, right. It's like, I can do one or the other, but maybe can't easily do both. Right. And, and that reflects out. And so, okay. Like, you know, and, and we used to hear, I mean, all kinds of things, right? Like the one I used to love was around questions people would have around alcohol. And the conversation around alcohol has really changed a lot in recent years. But, you know, back in the day, it was this study says alcohol is helpful for cardiovascular disease. And this study set of studies says that alcohol is a carcinogen. And so how do I make decisions about that, right? Like, which one do I choose? And so I think it is this sense of, there's conflicting information out there and people are trying to make sense of it and consolidate it into a course of action. And so what I love about those integrated scores is they're helping people to try and do that. Now, of course, you and I know, Gil, as scientists who get really in the weeds on risk scores, right? Like there's variability in the quality of them and variability in the data that they take in. And of course, one of the things that's most important in those risk scores is how we handle missing data right? Because you will, like, there will be things that are missing. And and so I think for me, the question around those risk scores is always the science behind them and, and important for people to recognize that there's not equal science across those scores. Okay. So that's that's a, a, a very good point. What you are saying, those scores should be also based on science and it's not enough to, for it to be gimmicky because maybe the end user is smart enough to understand that the uh, I don't know, the stress score is not uh, really a scientific score or the apple closing the ring. Yep. Nothing will happen if you, uh, uh, instead of uh, standing up at uh, 10.50, uh, at the 50 minutes of every hour, people do it 10 times and not 12 times, you will still be alive. But some other scores are a bit more important. If your glucose will be too high, you have a better chance for diabetes. My uh, follow-up question was about scores or follow-up uh, comment. That what I understood from you is that it's not enough to have a score. The score should be based on science and clear to the user and the user should trust in the score because uh, if uh, like the, let's take the Apple Watch example that you close the circle, it really doesn't matter if you uh, burn uh, 600 calories or 450. It's uh, it's not a big difference. But if the score is a score of, uh, let's say, uh, your uh, uh, score for uh, how, how likely you are to have diabetes, that's a, a score that is very relevant and clear to the user and uh, they will take uh, it uh, uh, more seriously. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there's two parts of it that I always like to remember, right, is that that score that isn't super scientific might be really exciting and it is a user. And so it might keep me engaged and motivated, but it might not have clinical value. And so sort of, I think one of the challenges is that like some people get really excited about closing their rings and right, like that to your point, like the number may have a lot of error in it, but people find it motivating. And so it, it serves a purpose. 
right? I think the the challenge, as you rightly point out, Gil, is that sometimes the 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 methods in the data calculation are not particularly precise, right? And I think the best example of that is sort of um, historically people would use these calorie counting apps as an ind- and and activity trackers a- as a way to try and balance this message of calories in, calories out for weight loss. And so we would hear people all the time who would use the estimated calories burned from like a treadmill at the gym, which are are really imprecise as a determination of how much they could eat that day. And so, and then the, the, the calorie calculations and sort of what they eat would be similarly imprecise. And those two things could sort of amplify each other in an unfortunate direction where people would be really off based on that. So, you know, I think it's sort of understanding to your point, right? The sense of, am I trying to give a sense that like, I got enough activity today. I did some activity today. Like how are those numbers being used becomes really important. Yeah. Yeah. And I can give you my example. I'm uh, hoping on the scale every day. And if it's a day uh, that uh, uh, I came a lot of weight from yesterday, I will, uh, I will plan my uh, nutrition differently than the day that I went on the scale and uh, my uh, weight was substantially lower than the day before. Again, I'm not sure if it's good or bad, but that's what I'm doing. And if I'm going now uh, trying to connect it to uh, a question that actually we received from our audience that we're really excited about uh, uh, the discussion with you, and it's really connected to that, is uh, they ask, how can we use behavioral change for a... Uh, 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 improve substantially our diet. What what are the tools that we can use uh, using behavioral change to make our diet better? Yeah. I mean, I think your example of the scale is a great one, right? Because you're creating a feedback loop for yourself. But I think you also know, because you're a scientist, right, that there's some natural fluctuations in your weight. And so there will be days where you know, you crush your diet, right? You eat all of the right things. And, you know, you get up the next morning and the scale, maybe the number hasn't gone down as much as you were hoping for. And there's just some natural variation that happens. And of course, you know that other things play into that, right? Your sleep and and other things that are happening. And so for women, like hormone levels can play into that as well. And so what we try to encourage people to do is to use it as an as as a tool, but not to get super hung up in, in the in the number day to day fluctuations. But sort of, are we tracking over a period of several days or weeks on that? And so, I think it's that to your point, sort of understanding the the measurement, what goes into it, and also the measurement error, right? So I also like to highlight to people that the the body fat composition estimates from many of the scales out there are pretty imprecise and to be pretty wary of of how much they anchor on fluctuations in those numbers. I think to the question from your user around behavior change techniques, you know, there are 100 behavior change techniques that scientists have identified. And so, you know, there's a lot of them that can go into supporting our diet. And so just a, a couple examples is sort of the Changing your changing your environment can be a really important one. And so knowing, having spoken with some of the dietitians on your team, Gail, you know, I know some of these are ones that they're likely using as well, but, you know, the, the food environment that we have in our home plays a lot into our, uh, supporting our dietary choices, right? So like, you know, it's 
it can seem like pretty basic things, but can make a big difference, right? That there's a bowl of fruit on the counter. So when I walk into the kitchen because I'm actually hungry or I'm bored hungry, right? That I'm I'm choosing the first thing I see is a is a healthy choice option. And I'm not tempted to sort of go open the the cupboard with maybe the the less healthy snacks in there, you know, because live with family members and everybody has their favorite snacks. So I can't entirely eliminate some of the the junk food from the household if I'm totally transparent about it. Right. So we do things like that. We like to do things like action planning. So if you're going to an event or you're going out to dinner that you're sort of contemplating what your plan is for managing your dietary choices, right? You still want to be able to go out to dinner with friends. You still want to be able to go to the family barbecue, but maybe everything there isn't going to align with your your healthy eating plan. And so you actually have an action plan for how you're going to manage that. We'll work with people on behavior change techniques around what happens when, right? Like I have the day where I do this, right? Like I can, you know, easy peasy for me to turn down the like, you know, generic catering pastry at the office, but like someone on my team, like actually hand makes this amazing like family recipe, like, you know, that's part of team bonding. I also enjoy eating those things. Right. So I don't want to, I don't want to not eat them, but then like, what am I going to do if that wasn't in my plan for the day? And how am I going to adjust so that it doesn't sort of feel like you know, I've totally gone off the rails and all is for naught because it, it isn't right. Like those things happen and they should, we should, we should enjoy being with people. We should enjoy breaking bread together and building community. And, you know, the other part of that is, you know, who do we surround ourselves with and how do we build support from those around us? And so, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting from some of the um, science is that when and, you know, because we, families have different food preferences. And so we tend to accommodate all of them in, in sort of what's in our pantry. Um, and the research has found that when um, a younger member of the family, like a kid, is the one who the family like has been recommended to make some dietary changes, the whole family gets on board and makes those changes. But when mom is the one who's trying to make those dietary changes, no one else is making those changes with mom. And so, you know, to me, it's a great example of how, you know, the support of the people around us can actually make a difference in our outcomes, but it can actually, you know, when we're doing it with someone else, make us easier for us to make healthy choices too. Yeah, I think that those are a great example. I can give you an example from last night. Last night, I went to a party with my wife and they, they, was, they had the great desserts and a lot of alcohol. So uh, I, 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 me and my wife uh, 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 took care of each other and said, okay, let's just take a picture of the dessert because they are nice, but don't eat it. And also, instead of ordering an uh, alcoholic drink, we just order a club soda and we paid. I think that was my most expensive club soda because it was in a bar. But still, it was good. It's, uh, I felt, okay, I, I'm willing to spend the money. But I will drink just water. So I, I think that uh, making those small uh, uh, changes are great. Another example is uh, uh, usually when you watch the uh, Sunday uh, football, it's uh, come with a lot of snack and all of that. So I realized that it's hard for me to cope with that. So I decided to watch the game from the, from the gym. I, I hope on the treadmill. And in the, in the gym, I don't have food. And also I'm burning calories. So making the small changes like that can uh, uh, take you uh, further away. So I, I, I really like the example that you provide to our audience. Thank you for that. Um, I love your examples, Gil. Those are great ones. 
Yeah, I, I hope that it is. It, it's tough. I, I, I want to say to the audience that everyone is uh, struggling with that. Uh, uh, I'm sure that you are. I'm, I'm, obviously, I am. It's, it's, uh, it's a lifelong uh, uh, struggle. Nobody is perfect. Uh, don't look at the person that uh, the gurus on uh, TV or on uh, the podcast that say, hey, we are... Uh, Perfect. Nobody is perfect. Everyone has an issue, and uh, everyone is seeing from ex- on Engel and saying, "Hey, this guy is perfect," but I'm not. No, nobody is perfect, and all of us are struggling. It's a day-to-day struggle, and I like your uh, point about plan. Always plan. Always plan, and try to find the friends that they fit for you. If you, if your friends are people that like to go to restaurant and eat a uh, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner in restaurant, you have a much less chance to lose weight if you want to lose weight. Uh, but if your friends are a marathon runner, so you have a better chance to, to lose weight because that's yeah. what they're doing. That's the fun that they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing too is is we tend to sometimes tell a story in our head to your point that I'm the only one, you know, struggling with or I'm the only one doing this. And and I, you know, I started, um, you know, I think a number of us started doing it into the pandemic for different reasons, but you know, I'll say to friends now when they say like, let's get together, I'll say, you know, oh, do you want to meet up at four o'clock and go for a walk? And the number of friends who are I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. Yes. Right. And so we're doing that instead of meeting up at five o'clock and going and having a cocktail. And I find we, we feel so much like I love getting to see those friends, right? We have amazing conversation because we're not somewhere loud where we're shouting over other people. And, you know, you're outside, which has benefits for our well-being and our mood. And we've got had this great walk that we got in. Um, and and so I, I found once I asked a few people and I got that great response, like I'm much more willing to ask other people. And like people always seem really excited um, by the answer. Like today's weather forecast where I live is uh, might stand in the way of that. But generally, like people are pretty excited by the suggestion. And so... I think too, not to assume that we're not, we're the only one who's feeling that way and sort of find that like, if you propose it, I think a lot more people are excited about doing that with you than you would have expected. Yeah, absolutely. Food is not the only social event. You can go for a walk, you can go to the gym, you can uh, watch a a movie together. There are so many things that you can do that are not involved food. And uh, and then, yeah, that's uh, from there, the world is easier. Another uh, question that we heard from our uh, listener is about a person that uh, traveling a lot. And oh. uh, because of that, uh, he or she need to uh, eat a lot of the meals outside in the restaurant. So how can uh, you help uh, him or her to be better? It's tough, right? It's really tough. I had a period of time where I was traveling every single week. And it, it's really, it can be really challenging. You know, I, I think I used to do a couple things. So one was to always pack some things in my bag that were snacks that I enjoyed. And that would sometimes allow me to get through a situation like we were talking about where the options aren't that healthy until I could get to a healthier option. So that was one part of it. So like, I was always the person who like, when I left, you know, got on the plane, like there was, you know, an apple or an orange in my bag. Like I would do some like healthy snack food things that I would take with me to, to, to help with that. So that was one part of it. And then I think the other part of it is 
sort of, again, that action planning. So, you know, sort of looking at the, the events you have and, and trying to get a sense of, okay, where is my highest risk? And how do I then plan the best I can, right? The other things around it. So, you know, you have this big client dinner and, and that client loves to like go to a steakhouse and they're going to order three bottles of wine, definitely going to order dessert, right? And so, okay, like I'm going to try the rest of the day to make choices that sort of, you know, counterbalance to the extent that I can, the impact of that is one part of it, right? And like, the, uh, you know, the next part of it for me is like, you know, like I might take the glass of wine, but I don't actually have to finish the glass of wine that's poured for me. I might take one bite of dessert to be polite, but I'm not going to take, you know, do the whole thing. Like, I actually think people care far less about what we're eating than we think they are. Like, we're very worried about that. But in many social situations, not all, like people really don't care that much. I think the other part is it being really important. We kind of talked about this before is like to offer ourselves some grace, right? That like, we don't have to be perfect. And, you know, so it is that sort of like, I'm not going to have a perfect day when I'm on the road, but what are the things that I can do to make it as good as I can um, in that context? Yeah, no, I think that it's a, it's a very good uh, suggestion. I, I, I can say that in the last couple of months, I was traveling a significant amount of time. And what I'm trying to do is uh, fill my bag with uh, good stuff in my bag. So when I'm hungry, at least I have something that is... Uh, and I agree with you, sometimes it's okay to have an off day because if we all, all the time we'll have an on day, we'll become more and more frustrated about that. So once a week to have your cheat day or cheat meal or, and then eat whatever you want, that's okay. We need to enjoy life. Um, so uh, I think that a uh, very good uh, um, suggestion for our uh, audience. Um, another question is, uh, and I think that we touched it a bit uh, a few minutes ago, but I think that it will be good to uh, go deeper into that. What about someone who wants to improve their diet, but is surrounded by a, a family member or co-workers that are not supporting them? Yeah. What should they, she do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's sort of, there's two elements to not supportive, right? So one is... Um, I've worked with folks in the past who their family members are, are sort of sabotage is kind of a harsh word, right? But, you know, their family members are like, ugh, like, why are you doing that? And they're like very actually directly critical of it and, and sort of trying to push back on it. And I find oftentimes that is more reflective of them and how they're feeling than it has anything to do with you. And I, I just kind of have to, you know, I think it's one of those places where you can't change them and you just kind of have to, I try to like just put those sentiments from them in, in a box and like do me into your point, right? Like you're going to go out, you're going to go to family dinner with that person. And they're going to say like, Oh, like all you healthy eating people, like, you know, and they give you a hard time and you just kind of, you know, you do your best to say like, didn't ask for your opinion. Like, here's what I'm doing. And like, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go hang out with people who have my back, you know? So, you, you know, you're trying to build some support in other places of your life, but like recognize, like, you're never going to convince Aunt Betty that like, you know, 
life life is is not sad when you're not eating junk food all the time like she's gonna do her thing I think that the other part of it is like I kind of referenced before like you know our family members you know particularly I think I find this a lot with parents that you know there there are things that like you know like I have a I have a kid who is extremely extremely active and you know, we just need to have some grab and go things in, in the in the cabinet that are just about getting like calories in between games. And, and, you know, those are things that like sometimes can be tempting to me, but aren't my healthiest choices. And so for me, that is around, you know, keeping the healthiest choices there as well, so that it's not just sort of one type of food environment. Um, so I, th- I think there's there's two different parts of that, like friends and family who aren't supportive is are they actively trying to sabotage or are they just sort of like they're doing their thing and it's a different thing than you're doing and you kind of have to figure out how to coexist. Okay. And what if there's uh, the kind that trying to sabotage, what is the best uh, way to, <laughs> to deal with them? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, it's, you know, you, you try and, and, contain the time that you spend with them. You try to counterbalance that by spending time with people who are supportive. And, and I think trying to convince them that you are right is, is probably not worth your time, right? Like we, it's, it's really hard to change other people. And so, you know, a lot of it for me is around like just putting, putting their perspective in a box that I can just, you know, set over here on a shelf set it aside and like, that's their opinion. They're going to have it. I'm going to keep doing me. No, I, I think that that's a good uh, suggestion. Sometimes uh, in order to keep you good and healthy, the people that you are with are not the right people. So spend less time with them, unfortunately. Yeah. And, that, and that's hard. That's hard with family. Right. But, yeah. but, but, you know, sometimes it's, it, I try to frame it as it's not that we're spending less time with family. We're spending more time with the people who are our friends, right? We're spending more time with the people who are supportive. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same in the, uh, uh, I think so tracking, I see it as a, I'm looking at it as a food. So instead of cutting bad food, if you inject more be- good food, then you have less time for the bad food. So it's exactly like that exactly. With, uh, with, with your exactly. uh, 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 social. If you sp- uh, spend more right. time with uh, good people, you have less time for the the bad people, but less, less exactly. good people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, uh, Kate, in our previous discussion, you mentioned that there are close to 100 different behavioral uh, uh, change techniques. And um, uh, our audience uh, would like to know more about uh, some specific uh, behavioral change technique that uh, uh, you have in mind, but they aren't getting uh, enough attention. Uh, and they deserve uh, uh, our listener to try. Good. I mean, I, I it's it's a hard question for me to answer, Gail, because I know you guys use a bunch of great behavior change techniques inside Tracker. So I think your audience is maybe not representative of the the average population. You know, I I think I think some of the things we've we've just been talking about are the ones that I I would really point to is that you know we forget sort of building social support and changing. Um, our environment, our physical environment and social environment are, are huge supporters of behavior change. And so I think, you know, when we surround ourselves with people who support our path or are on a similar path, 
it makes it so much easier to be successful in that. Right. And I think, um, we used to see that a lot in that, you know, I started my career in, in public health when we could still smoke in bars and restaurants, right. When we could still smoke in workplaces. And when you saw those physical environments change, you saw a lot of people's behavior change on, on something that is incredibly addictive. And so to me, it's a, it's a great example of when, when everyone around us is doing or not doing something, it makes it far easier for us to make that, you know, engage in that behavior. So in a way you are saying that the, uh, environment is so important and the, there is a lot, maybe there is a lot for uh, the society and the government uh, uh, to do. The example of uh, smoking is a good one. Uh, I remember when yeah. I was young, everyone smoked and uh, I remember all the bars and the, I think that in Europe, it's still like <laughs> that. But in the US, you you don't see anyone smoking in the restaurant. So in the past, you had to come and say, hey, I want really, I really want to go to a restaurant, but someone will smoke. Now you don't have it. So, and you can yeah. see the effect on the, uh, on cancer and other uh, uh, smoking-related diseases. I, I can give you all a, an interesting example. Uh, I'm Israeli, so in Israel, they decided to cut, to make a, a big tax on uh, a sugary beverages. And mm -hmm. they started to see the, uh, uh, the effect on that. Now they changed the, uh, the government change, and the, uh, at least for the uh, orthodox side of, uh, uh, of the population, they have a big families and they really like the, the, to drink the Coke with, uh, with uh, meals. And they, so immediately they changed the, the law and they decreased the tax. But then uh, a few women came to uh, the governor, government and said, listen, uh, I, we don't want our kids to have uh, diabetes. So we want you to put the tax back. Which was amazing to me to see that how the, huh? the same population that they basically see it as the pleasure of uh, drinking a uh, sugary drink, came to the uh, government and say, no, we want it back. So I think that uh, it's, I think that we have a lot of uh, uh, hope in the future that the population start to understand what is good and what is bad. And, and sometimes they make it expensive. The same with cigarettes. Cigarettes, you can, everyone that wants to smoke can, but they, you have a big tax on that. So it's, it is expensive. Uh, yeah. I think those are great examples, right? And kind of focused on policy. But I think the other one is just, you know, you, you mentioned being is Israeli and I, I go there with my students every year. We're heading in the weeks. But one of the things that sort of stands out to me is the way that young people will sort of gather on the beach, right? Like they have their spot that they're going to meet up with their circle of friends and they hang out in the beach. And, you know, we see that in some parts of the U.S., right? Like people who live in Colorado will meet up with their friends and go hiking or biking. And in California, you know, you see, well, and then when you look at sort of the chronic disease rates, the health behavior profiles of those states, like there's a lot of variation in the U.S. from state to state. And some of that may be health policy, but some of it may also just be the social norms, of, of how different, you know, it's sort of like, yes, we, we all live in the U.S., but but there really are big differences in some ways from sort of what the, the culture of, of how people gather and how they spend their time can vary from one state to the next. Yeah. And even the, I'm, I'm piggyback on your location, Chicago. I, I, I read a, an article about that, that in Chicago, the 
population that live in downtown, especially in the area, the, the tough area with the food, they call it the food desert. If you, the, you look at the lifespan, they might live 12 years uh, shorter than someone that live in the suburbs because they don't have access to a good food. They don't have a good education. They, they are too busy. They are working all the time. So they are smoking and they don't dress. So I think that they, uh, to follow up to what you said, the, where you live is so important because if you live in a place that you have a green, greenery around you and you can go for a run and you can sit and see the birds and look at right, the and sky. And those, those food deserts, right, to your point, the, the communities that are a food desert tend to also be places that don't have great access to spaces to be physically active. They tend to also be places that don't have great access to primary health care, right? So yeah. people aren't get engaging in preventive health care, right? They're, they are communities that have just sort of been marginalized on a lot of different levels. And all of that, you know, it's, it's why we talk a lot about, you know, social determinants of health. And, you know, and those are, those are, those are to kind of bring it full circle. Those are reflective of policy decisions that get made about where we're going to invest in our communities, right? And decisions that have been made in Chicago about which communities are going to be resourced and which communities are not. And so I think, you know, it, it, it is, you know, I think important to recognize that we don't all have same, the same access to make the same choices. Yeah. So if we will continue in this line and uh, say, okay, let's assume that you are a person that live in uh, Chicago in the food desert and you want to uh, get uh, out of the statistic that you will have a, a, a chronic disease or a, 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 a metabolic related diseases, what are the uh, behavioral uh, change tactics that you can use there in order to uh, uh, beat the statistic and they uh, live to 100 and uh, 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 climb the Everest at the, age of, uh, at the age of 80. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great question, you know, because it's, you know, yes, there are, there probably are healthy foods that are available. They're just harder to find. They're, they might be, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables are going to be less accessible. They might actually be more expensive as a result in those communities. And so, you know, it's, it's just harder to make those choices, right? And we talked earlier about the fact that we all are busy and, you know, time is is a limited resource that we have to allocate to different health choices. And so, you know, those folks, right, they might have to take two buses to get to a grocery store that has fresh fruits and vegetables. And the time spent doing that is time not available, right, to get a little more sleep, not available, to go engage in, in, in some physical activity. And so I think the, the challenge is, is just, it's not the knowledge necessarily around what is healthy. It, it's just the ability to make those health choices is that much harder. And there's just sort of, you know, the, these are folks who are often spending a lot more time commuting for work. Right. And so like, for me, that was always one of the things, you know, my poor husband's, you know, job is an hour and a half from where we live each direction, you know, and, and during the pandemic, he looked at me and he was like, oh my gosh, like I have time to be active in a way I never have before. Right. It was, it was just amazing how much healthier he was as a function of, of not spending that time in the car every day. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talking about that, uh, and I think that that's a very good point uh, about the pandemic. We, we learn so much and uh, a lot of us uh, are working uh, from home or uh, at least a hybrid. 
but uh, some of us are uh, getting back to, to work. And how can we maintain the good habits that we uh, absorb during the pandemic and not uh, forget about them when uh, we are getting back to work? Any suggestion about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I recognize not every workplace is the same and has the same, you know, sort of norms. But I think those, you know, those same kinds of things that we talk about, right? Like, you know, if if you can have a walking one-on-one -on -one with a member of your team, right? If you don't have to be sitting in front of a computer to review, you know, a document or you're not sitting over, you know, some lab results together, right? The ability to sort of say, hey, like, it's a beautiful day. Like, let's, you know, let's take a walk for our one-on-one -on -one conversation. You know, those are those kinds of things, right? They they create a healthy environment at work. I think sometimes people and I've heard, you know, enjoy those more because it feels a little less like intense than like my boss is sitting across the table from me, right? Like you sort of can have a, have a different kind of conversation. Um, you know, I think the other part of it is, you know, one of the reasons we're bringing people back into the office is we want to build a sense of community on our teams at the office. And we want to, we want people to gather together and have those less formal conversations. And, and of course, you know, doing that over, over meals, right? Breaking bread together is, is sort of something that's been part of human connection for a long time. And so, you know, we were just talking about like how much harder it can be to eat healthy when we go out, but making purposeful choices about how we do that, right? Are we going to have a potluck where everyone brings their healthy thing on that day that we're in the office together? Are we going to be more purposeful in our choices about where we go for a team lunch when we do that, right? Because we do want people to enjoy gathering together and not feel like they have to choose gathering from their healthy choices. And so to the extent that when we do bring people back into a workplace, that we can we can be supportive of that. I, I think it really does make a difference. Yeah, yeah, and I, I can uh, say that uh, I, when I worked uh, five days a week in the office, I used to take your advice. I didn't know that it was your advice, but I used to uh, make a lot of uh, uh, meeting uh, walking around the Charles River in uh, in Boston. That was was fun, and you you get a lot of ideas when uh, when uh, you do that. I yeah. think that another point that you mentioned before is plan. So people don't like changes. Changes is uh, is uh, is uh, scary. Mm -hmm. But if you will plan and come and say, okay, uh, I will bring the lunch, or I know that there is a very healthy restaurant, so let's go with the team to that restaurant. Or if you are managing the office, bring a healthy food to the office and don't bring a junk or at least a few options of it. So there are a lot of things that uh, we can do in order to make the change uh, uh, positive. And as you said, I'm 100% agree with you. I think that uh, walking one or percent from home, you you miss the cooler discussion, and those discussions are so important for innovation that uh, I I recommend everyone that working their full time from uh, home at least go to the office once a, once a week and spend time <laughs> with the team and uh, and know them. And it's completely different yeah. when you when you walk together with someone that you ate, as you said, uh, broke the uh, bread together than someone right. that you see on Zoom. Uh, you yeah. care less about emo hell, yeah. Well, and I think I think Zoom is an interesting thing, right? Because we all leaned in hard to video communication during the pandemic because we had to. And and there's something lovely about being able to, you know, see the facial expressions of someone yeah. who's who's not, you know, where you are. And and I do think, you know, the science around communication indicates that there's value in that. But I think, you know, the thing I also know is 
pre-pandemic, right? Most, a lot of my conversations were just a straight phone call and I could go for a walk or, you know, I could, you know, the number of colleagues I knew who used to be on a treadmill when I was having a call with them. They they do a lot of work with exercise professors who have a treadmill next door to their desk and, and, and like, why not? Right. Like, good for you. And, you know, I think that that's something that people aren't doing when they, they feel like they have to always be on video. And so I think, you know, not that I'm advocating getting rid of video communication because that, that facial connection does have value. But I think, you know, I have a colleague who will, when we have a meeting scheduled and, and I see this colleague in person and we do do video calls on things, but I'll occasionally get a like, can we do this one via phone? Like, I'd love to go for a walk. And I'm like, yes, like, absolutely. And, and like, I just think that's a, so, you know, I think of that as like a people manager or a team leader, or, you know, like, you create the space for people to be able to ask for those kind of things and empower them to do those kind of things to create that environment together. Yeah. Uh, you gave uh, our listener a, a bunch of uh, very good uh, suggestion how to cope with uh, uh, moving back to work or moving uh, hybrid. And I think that that's a fascinating uh, uh, situation. Uh, in the last few years, uh, I think that the history we we uh, condense like a, a century in, in, inside a few years. Often it won't happen again, but we, we learn so much from uh, this situation. I think that the, also the innovation was uh, amazing. How they developed the drug in like nine months and uh, Zoom went up and now down and Peloton was the best company in the world and now it's the, the least company. And it's, the, the truth is somewhere in between. So I think that the, the last few years was... Uh, a very interesting uh, 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 fast-forward experiment that uh, I don't think that we know exactly what is the output of that, but right. it's definitely was uh, an, uh, an interesting experiment and definitely a lot of uh, a lot of people needed some help with uh, behavioral uh, changes and behavioral science. So, uh, Kate, I, I, I really enjoyed the discussion today and uh, I really want to thank you for that. Um, and we look forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the living scientist. For more information, please go to www.instatracker.com slash podcast. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.